Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Progeny Podcast. This week, I am delighted to be joined by Father Christopher Klohisi, Catholic priest and a lecturer in Shia Islam. He is the author of two very important books, Fatima, Daughter of Muhammad, and Half of My Heart, The Narratives of Zainab, Daughter of Ali. In today's podcast, we will discuss how Father Christopher got into studying and researching Shia Islam, the two books he has authored, and look at the events of Karbala and also his research into the life of Lady Zainab, daughter of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Father Christopher, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you uh, on the Progeny podcast. Um, I want to start by asking you about your role at the Vatican. Um, and what that entails day-to-day basis. So um, I know you're in the, the UK at the moment, but generally once you're back in Rome, hopefully, safely, um, what is your profession as uh, we know you are a priest working there? Good, thank you. So, so primarily priests work in churches and in parishes, but there's some of us who have branched off into a more academic side of things, into lecturing, teaching and studying. And so I, although I worked for a long time in a parish in South Africa, I now, for the last good number of years, have entered into an academic career of, of teaching. And mm-hmm. You know, I work for the Vatican, but but don't live in the Vatican because the Vatican is quite a, a small place, and you don't want too many people living there. Correct. I live in Rome, but but I work for a Vatican college or a Vatican-sponsored college uh, for Islamic and Arabic studies. And primarily now, my role is to research because that's quite an important feature of our lives, and also to teach. So I teach a number of courses, and I do a fair amount of research, and and also I try to guide some students who are doing doctorate. Uh, specifically the ones who are doing doctorates in Shi'i subjects or subjects that touch at least on Shi'i Islam. Interesting. Um, considering you're, 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 you are a priest, um, what made you get into studying and lecturing about Islam at an academic level? And when did this start? This started in South Africa, where I was working in an area where there were lots of mosques and Muslims. And, and many of the families in my own parish had other family members who'd converted to Islam. And okay. I thought, well, they're still part of the family. One can't just cut them out and pretend they don't exist. Mm-hmm. We have to acknowledge that they are part of our community as well, and that we need to be a part of their lives. So I suggested to my, the authorities that we needed to make a study of Islam, but an academic study, not a polemical study, mm-hmm. not a study in order to convert people mm-hmm. away from Islam. That would be a waste of our time and it wouldn't be our interest. I was interested in promoting a, a healthy dialogue with Islam that was based on good academic resources rather than on polemics and, you know, my religion is better than your religion. That That's just silly. Mm-hmm. But, but when you get people who have studied faith and understand the depth of faith in people's lives and that people are Muslim for a reason, it's not just because they're born Muslim. People choose to practice Islamic faith or Christian faith. When you understand that, then you understand that dialogue is important. So I, I came to Rome, to Cairo, first of all, to study Arabic, some Arabic. And then I continued Arabic in Rome and also studied Islam generally. And while I was studying, we did a, a very short course on Shia Islam. And I was captivated by Hussein and by Karbala and wow. decided even then 
I can remember reading on Karbala and thinking, I'm going to spend my life specializing in this. So that, in fact, I teach Shia Islam, but my own training is an historian, and my specific area of interest is Karbala and all of the characters who people or populate that event and the things leading to it and the consequences of that event. Do you think you were, you were, you know, you heard the story of Imam Hussein? Do you think maybe it was the the thought of you remembering the sacrifice of Jesus that led you to, to, to you know, wanting to study about Hussein more? Or do you think it was nothing really to do with that? Oh, I think there's a lot, a great mm-hmm. deal. Now, I'm quite determined that we need to preserve the identity of Al-Hussein. He's not Jesus. Of course. And he's not a sort of a semi-Jesus. He is Al-Hussein. And Jesus, for his part, is not a semi-Al-Hussein. And it's quite important because, especially in some of the female figures like Zainab and Fatima, we're inclined to, you know, we always say Fatima's like Mary. Well, yes, but Fatima is Fatima. Mm. And she has her own unique... So so I, I was, of course, struck by the similarities between people who give their lives or have their lives taken for the sake of what is true and just, and a death that can be redemptive. Now, I know that redemption is a problematic word, but I do know that within some of the schools, certainly of Shia Islam, the idea of Hussein's death is a redemptive idea, that somehow Hussein's death heals Islam and, uh, and, and heals the damage and heals people's lives, and puts them back onto the right path again. He's not, he's not divine in that sense that he's understood the way Christians understand Jesus, but he is, as an exceptionally courageous and just man, a perfect model and an ideal to which people can strive. So, oh, the similarities are there, but I, I try to keep the two figures very separate. because. So w- what was your journey uh, in, in this field of study, especially when it comes to Karbala? Uh, how long have you been reading about Karbala and what type of research material has helped in your uh, field of study. Well, I, you know, one of the reasons we study Arabic is so we can read the Arabic text. That's quite of important. Course, so course. obviously the Shia Hadith, the, the books of Hadith, are, and, and the Shia history books are important. But I also try to maintain a balance because I use especially Sunni history books. There's some Sunni works, Maktals, for example, which mm. are excellent descriptions, early descriptions of Karbala. It started really with Fatima, Lady Fatima, because I, I was researching Hussein, and of course you have to then read about his mother. Yeah. And I was quite shocked that there's so much devotion to Fatima and so little written about her. This is, we're talking now back in the, in, the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. I was quite shocked at how little there was academic work about her. There were pamphlets and pious books about how she prayed and how she was holy. And those are important. They have a place. But you also need an academic foundation. She was a real person and played a fundamental role in the very start of, of the, the, the preaching of, of the prophet. And, and therefore, you can't just you know, have holy books about her. You need to discover who she was. So I decided to do my doctoral thesis on her. And I produced what I hope still and think still was the first real biography of Lady Fatima. I mean, in, in, in a Western language, but based on the Arabic sources, and that looked at her in depth beyond just the popular piety. Um, and, and, and so she was my kind of introduction, and, and, and you can't separate her from 
al-Hussein or from Karbala over which she wept and grieved so much. Um, and So she was my entrance and I still have huge devotion to Lady Fatima. She's still my kind of number one person of interest in terms of study, but I've, I've branched out because I'm, I'm trying to look more and more broadly at the Karbala event, the, the, the figures who populate and people that event, um, all of whom are, are crucially important, but many of whom still have no biographies of their own. Talking of uh, of Lady Fatima, um, we know that you have um, managed to uh, author two books, uh, one on Lady Fatima, which I'm, I'm guessing is your thesis. It was my thesis, kind of, because you can't just publish a doctoral thesis as boring yeah, as anything. Yeah, yeah. You have to touch it up. So, yeah. so I, I, I've published it when it was first when I first finished, and now I've done a second edition where I made some corrections to my own Arabic, which had improved over the years, and I was unhappy with some of the translations of available Hadith. on Amazon. Uh, yes, it is. It okay. is available on Amazon. But the second edition is more important because it's 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 corrected some. I, I changed my opinion on a number of of things that I thought had to be looked at, little things. Okay. And and I changed some of the translations. So it's the second edition, and it, it's available also in soft cover, which is a little cheaper. Than, okay. Then and than. and your and your second book is on. So the second book is 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 really in a sense a bit of a joke in that there were a group of us. There was a group of us in Rome, professors. Yeah. All of us have doctorates in, in Arabic Islamic studies. So we were sitting around a table at lunch, basically complaining that the Muslim scholars are not writing about the woman, the woman of Karbala, for example, substantial work. And we each decided that we would take a female figure mm-hmm. and produce a proper biography. So, of course, I took Zainab. I said, oh, well, I know her mother. I'm going to now do her. None of the others were serious so none of the others actually did anything. So I plowed away, wrote this book, published it, and they were all quite surprised. <laughs> and I said, well, we'd agreed that we were going to do this. Um, I, I chose Zainab because, again, somebody uh, has written on another's Um Kulthum, for example. There is a good work on her. But I thought, again, Zainab is this extraordinary woman to whom there's such immense devotion, and yet there's nothing written about her her life. There are big gaps in people's knowledge about, you know, what she did between the age of, you know, five and 30, for example. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote that book, and it the book is called Half of My Heart because there was a lament that Zainab sung, I think, on the day of Karbala myself. Some of the historians put it later, but I think it was on that very day when she mm-hmm. saw the body of her brother and his companions, unburied, Mm-hmm. And and she refers to him as half of my heart, her brother Hussein. And I thought, well, you know, half of my heart was the Fatima book, and now this is the second half, mm. the Zainab book. Now I don't have any any heart left, I suppose, but I'm certainly going to tackle other issues. But Zainab is Zainab is an extraordinary woman, and like Hussein, transcends all religious political barriers. She is a, a universal ideal. Talking of of of, of Zainab being a, a universal ideal, um, and this is interesting because as an as an as an academic who's from outside the Shia faith, uh, your perspective on um, on the school that represents the Ahl Bayt is quite important. I feel. Um, do you do you think that the members of the Shia faith uh, utilize the best methods? Um, in propagating the and promoting the message of of, of Hussein and the message of the Ahlul Bayt, I ask this uh, because, as someone that also works in in the media uh, and someone who travels around the world to 
give lectures during the nights of Muharram. Mm. Uh, I sometimes feel, uh, and this is as as my own opinion, uh, that uh, sometimes we Shia. So I'm speaking about some of the people in, in my, from my from my faith. We concentrate on our rituals. Uh, our commemorations, uh, our own mourning. Of course, I'm not saying that, and you said this beautifully at the beginning when you said, I wanted to study Islam. You did not want to study Islam so you can convert people from Islam to Christianity. And I also feel that we should not uh, spread or promote the message of Hussein, the message of Karbala, because we want people to all of a sudden start mourning Imam Hussein and become Shias, mm. but to take the universal concepts that Hussein stood for. So coming back to my question is, uh, do you feel that the Shia are doing a good job in 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 in, in spreading the message? And I, I, you've kind of answered the question by saying. There was when you sat down with the with the group of priests that you were with. There's there's no book about the women of Karbala, an academic work. Obviously, there might be books in Arabic, but there is no work about Lady Zainab, who was the partner of Hussein in Ashura. Okay, so let me let me try and work in from an angle because yes. because you know as well as I do that among the Shi scholars for a long time now. There's been something of a tension when it comes to people like Lady Fatima, to a less extent Zainab, but especially Lady Fatima. Mm -hmm. There are some scholars who say, look, stop talking about all these supernatural things because you're putting her out of the reach of ordinary women, not okay. just Shia Muslim, Muslim woman, mm -hmm. all women. The moment you make her so supernatural, she becomes an impossible ideal. I can't imitate her because she is beyond anything I could be. Mm -hmm. Then you get another group who say, no, if you take away that popular piety, you are reducing the reality of Fatima's life. So there is this, this battle. And one of the things that struck me was that there's been a reinterpretation of Lady Zainab. So, so at one stage, she was just the weeping, grief-stricken sister of Hussein. Mm -hmm. But during the, the 1970s, especially in Iran, she was more and more understood as a powerful revolutionary figure but to the cost of the weeping woman, the mother, and you don't want to lose either. So, so the key for me, firstly, is to find this middle path between the weeping, grief-stricken Fatima, which cannot be denied historically, but also an extraordinarily powerful figure who went about, you know, after the death of her father, promoting Islam and promoting her, her, her husband, of course, and his role. Zainab, you know, was immensely powerful when she stood before these dreadful men in power at the time of Karbala. But she was also a grief-stricken woman, filled with anxiety over what was lying and what was going to happen. And I think that for me, that was the important thing to bring that balance. Now, now I think that ritual in Shia Islam is of great importance. You can't take ritual away because ritual is a way that people express themselves because words can't do it, so a ritual does it. The fact is our lives are full of ritual. Every day you have all kinds of rituals that you follow without even knowing it in terms of how you get dressed, what you eat for breakfast. It's ritual, it's crucial. At the same time, the key issue about 
about especially Al Hussein and Lady Zainab for me is that they are exceptionally important models of justice, social justice, about right standing up against wrong and about taking a stand no matter what the cost. And you don't want to lose either. You don't want to lose the ritual that grieves over the grandson of the Prophet of Islam. Or, or over Zainab and the Ahl Bayt who survived Karbala. At the same time, you don't want to lose the fact that the best way to promote Al Hussein today and Zainab is to, to, to do acts of justice, to wage justice rather than war, if you like. So, you know, and I know that there are places, I mean, I came across this in my research where, where people are encouraged to do simple things go and give blood, donate blood for Zainab. In other words, give, offer your blood to the blood bank for someone who may need it, but see it as an act of, of goodness done for Zainab. In other words, you don't necessarily have to go out into the street and do some ritual. There are all kinds of acts that will add to society that can be done in her name. And I think both are important. I, would, I wouldn't want to see anything disappear because I, as a, as a Catholic, I understand ritual. It is crucial to our lives. If you remove ritual, people's spirituality becomes legalistic. And the whole beauty of Shia Islam is that it's not just legalism. It has a passion to it. And that passion comes from the ritual of Karbala, of Ashura, and other rituals too. Take away that passion and you reduce yourself to some dry legalistic system. And we have enough of that in the world. The yeah. world needs a bit of passion. And, of course. and Karbala provides that passion for millions of people. But you want to say to people, besides the, the weeping and whatever else you do, whatever other ritual, don't forget that primarily Al Hussein, Lady Zena, all the others, they, they, are, they are for justice. They, if you want to stand with them, then you must stand in a place of justice and of truth and of integrity. That's where you have to be. So you can weep over them, but weeping will never be enough. There has to be a balance. That was beautifully said, Father Christopher. Well, I might get uh, into trouble from some people, but anyway, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wanted um, to go back uh, to, 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 to something important that you mentioned uh, moments ago when you mentioned that there, both your books uh, that you've written, the first you mentioned that was the first uh, academic work in English on Lady Fatima. And the second was uh, on Lady Zainab, the fact and you what started off as a conversation between yourself and your colleagues that there wasn't enough uh, work on the women of Karbala, uh, which led you to to write uh, this 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 book. Again, you, you maybe you, th there's no right answer to this question, but or there's no correct answer, but. Why do you think, in your opinion, is there a lack of enough or any sometimes academic work about the Shia? Um, I mean, I'm going to give you an, an example just to, uh, to try and ex explain what I mean. I mean, a few years ago, for example, in school when we did religious education, I know this, this has changed now. Uh, and you were taught about to say you picked Islam as a religion, that you'd you'd get a, a book of maybe ninety or a hundred so odd pages about Islam, the the teachings of Islam, which prepares you for the exam at the end of the year, and then there'd be probably one paragraph about the Shia, mm. 
um, and my with my interactions with some university lecturers and speakers, they said only recently has there been now an increase in in in, in Shia academic work. Do you and I as I mentioned, there's no probably right answer or one correct answer. It could be a, different factors. Why why do you feel maybe or do you think there's not enough work? In the academic world on Shia. Look, it's changed. It's changed. Yeah. I mean, one of the great things about uh, Shia Islam is that in places like Iran, they are translating all the great works into various languages. Mm-hmm. More and more, you are, for those who don't have Arabic or don't have Farsi, but especially Arabic, you are finding the best Shia works mm-hmm. translated into English. And, and, and this is a wonderful thing. So Al-Kafi, for example. Yep. This is an, a monumental work that is now available in English mm-hmm. so that Shia Muslims and others who are studying Islam and who can't read Arabic are able to read the greatest works of Shia Islam. So it's changed. The other thing is that, that you know, when I buy books now, I buy them in Tehran because the Iranians especially, but others too, they're quite keen to put books into the hands of students. Here in the West, we don't want that. We want them to pay a fortune. But, but in other parts of the Islamic world, the, the, the authorities want their students to read. And so the students don't pay half their, half their lives away just to buy a single book. So there's a, an, there's a stress on academics there that we still don't have. Of course, we know that numerically, Shia Islam is a minority within mm-hmm. Islam, although, although in terms of numbers, if you're talking percentage, that's one thing. If you're talking in terms of actual numbers, you're talking about a substantial number of people spread across the world. And the whole point, of course, of Shia Islam is not in terms of numbers, but in terms of the richness that its history and its spirituality is adding every day. That's much more important. So it's not surprising that, you know, in a textbook introducing non-Muslims to Islam, you find a paragraph about about uh, about Shia Islam, you say, wait a minute, this is not right. There's a whole lot more. But I think mm-hmm. that is changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has been politically a great ari- a rising up of the Shia everywhere. The Shia are becoming more and more prominent in terms of their in terms of their great scholars, in terms of the impact they're making on society. Look at London, how many Shia communities there are in London. Mm-hmm. Look at some of the work they're doing. It is extraordinary. You can't walk across a London street and you don't without bumping into a Shia Muslim. They are everywhere and they are adding to society. So I think it is changing. Talking, talking, talking of, 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 of Tehran, I'm guessing you traveled there yourself? No. Oh, no, okay. I use the internet. But okay. the point is that if you want to buy really good Arabic texts, you need to buy them somewhere over there. And, and so uh, my college, every year, for example, we go to Cairo where they have a massive book, book fair. fair yeah. And we buy tons of stuff there. And we're thinking more and more now in terms of also going, because they have the same thing in Tehran. And, and uh, have you traveled to Karbala or Najaf? I haven't. I have many invitations, but I haven't been yet. And I've got, a, I've got a list of priorities of places I need to go. I mean, Damascus is one of them, obviously. Yeah. I need to get to Damascus. Um, but I also, you know, I want to go back both to Najaf and to Qum, not to one or the other. I really want to go to both because I think they're both crucially important they both play a role Mm -hmm. so you know the trouble is i have quite a heavy teaching schedule and travel is very difficult i don't even get home so (laughs) so travel becomes increasingly expensive but i have i have many invitations and and i have a list of priorities of places i need to go and obviously you know i want to go and research manuscripts i want to try and find copies of manuscripts that i can look at because some of the printed texts today are full of mistakes Mm -hmm. interesting okay um 
something beautiful that you, that you know you, you do is, is that of research you know and, and this is something quite essential for someone um who's teaching uh, and, and lecturing and i'm guessing you've done quite a bit of research and study when it comes to the the events of karbala through different sources mm. um again f- from your from your experience and your research how accurate or of course inaccurate um are the accounts of the event of Karbala that are popular today within uh, within Shia pulpits? Mm. Um, I don't know if you've if you've come across. Uh, I'm sure you have the, the 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 events, especially when it comes to the maqtal, yeah, which is quite a delicate matter. Um, the way you know each companion or the way each family member was killed and in such a brutal way. Um, are the other other accounts from your research are the accounts quite accurate the ones that are being uh, uh, spread from the pulpits in, in Shia centers and Shia communities okay so so I need to say first that I heard just today and I'm not going to tell my source but I heard today that there are other maktals that we haven't seen okay that we haven't been allowed to see because mm-hmm. they're quite brutal in their description of what happened on the day of Ashura. Mm-hmm. So this is something I heard today, and I'm going to go and dig a little bit. But I used Shi and Sunni maktals because I thought it's important to, to find both. So, so obviously, Abu Mikhnaf's maktal is crucially important. Mm-hmm. It's a very early account, but his eyewitnesses are very important people, and his, his transmitters are important people. Uh, Tabari, the, the Sunni history is, I think, a very good source for Karbala because, again, he has eyewitnesses who saw little things. You know, I mean, an eyewitness in a terrible event like that, when an eyewitness notices tiny things, the earrings of Lady Zainab glistening in the sun as she comes out into the battlefield, who notices that sort of thing? Or the sandal strap of a little boy who comes out dragging a sword ready to fight, and he's so small, I mean, he can't even pick the sword up, but his sandal strap is broken and his sandal is dragging. Who notices those things? Good eyewitnesses, who, are, who for me, are the trustworthy ones. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, so obviously I used the maktal of Hawarizmi, which is, is very important, of Tabari's, Tabari's account of Karbala. And then the Sunni versions, which, which of course grow as time goes on because more and more detail comes, becomes available or is added. Stories are, are increased in the, in the detail of, of things like the conversations that took place. So I think generally if you, if you listen to the, the recitals today, um, you know, you're, you know, part of it is drama. So you're going to have addition because drama demands that. But the basic narrative stands and the basic narrative is well known and, and, I, and I think well preserved and well kept. And they, I know they're different narratives in terms of various people and, and, and what they did and how they, they reacted. You know, for example, one of my great passions at the moment is that Abbas Mm-hmm. is another one who has no biography. Mm-hmm. He's an extraordinary man. Mm-hmm. He's the great hero of Karbala, and nobody has written on him anything substantial. Now, mm-hmm. I know it's because the sources are very few for his life, mm-hmm. but at the very least, there could be an academic account of Abbas at Karbala and at Safin, you know, at the very least. Yeah. So what you've got is you've got people in pulpits and on, you know, on doing these, these famous plays, these majalis and these memorials, um, Tazia, these plays. You, you, you've got all of that, and I think you've got a basic narrative running through it that's true, but you've got, because drama demands this, poetry demands it, you've also got an embellishment which is not false. It's, an, it's a, a, a pulling out all the elements of the story 
to make people today understand how brutal it was. Talking of, of um, research, and I ask you this because you've written this book on Lady Zainab, which I'm sure you took uh, some time in, in researching her life. Um, and this is maybe, it's just come up now in my mind, uh, which is something quite interesting to myself and maybe to some of the, the listeners. Um, and that is the place of burial of, <laughs> of, of, of Sayyidah Zainab. Um, amongst uh, Shia scholars, from what I've read, uh, there are three narrations. Yes. There could be more. And that being Medina, which is the least likely. And then the, the second most likely, or in my opinion, I'll tell you my opinion later. Tell me your opinion. <laughs> the second most likely being in uh, Cairo. And the most likely being in Sham, in where it is Damascus, Damascus. where some people go and visit. Um, and of course, all, 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 all these opinions are respected because you know they're not come from thin air. There's some research behind it. From your own research, reading different sources, um, what's the most likely? Because no one can say this is a hundred percent it. Because yeah. you know it's going to be quiet. But what's the most likely? Uh, place that you from your research into the burial place of Lady Zainab well like you I'm inclined to cut Medina out I don't think Medina yeah. is really a, a viable option so so and I went into my research with the basic knowledge that most people would go for for Damascus or for, for Damascus or outside of Damascus yeah. and then but there was I mean when I was in Cairo I went to visit Lady Zainab yeah. the, the masjid or the, the center the, the, yeah the tomb there so uh, there are Good arguments for Cairo. Mm -hmm. And I found a number of reports, admittedly they were Sunni reports, from some Sunni mystics, mm -hmm. uh, medieval mystics, who insisted that they went and prayed every day at the tomb of Sayyida Zainab, and who insisted this is Sayyida Zainab, granddaughter of Muhammad, not some other Zainab. So mm -hmm. they were determined. But I also understand that the majority of a uh, majority opinion tends towards Damascus mm -hmm. or yeah, Syria. So, and you know, it's, it's, and there are a number of stories about how she died and what happened and how she ended up there. Was she banished? Was there a famine? Some people say there was a famine. There are some reports that she, say she was hurt in an accident and died in an accident. Okay. It's very hard to know. You know, this is about a year after Karbala that she dies, about a year. So it's very hard to know how she died. There's some, there's some reports that they went to Syria, to, to Cairo, and they were welcomed there, she and some of the family members, by, by various officials and given a place to live. She wouldn't see a doctor at the end. She refused to see a doctor. But, but there are other reports that contradict that. So I think that you are left with a certain mystery that is something I quite like about Zainab. You don't want to know every detail. The point is that I, as a, faith, as a religious person, as a, as a practice, I understand that those great saints are with us in a very close way. Even if I don't know where their bodies lie, I understand that, that they are with us. You know, a faithful Muslim understands that in some way the prophet is present to him or to her without necessarily being able to go to the tomb of the prophet. I have a closeness to him nonetheless. Um, and I think it's the same with Zainab, that it would be lovely to know, but I think that, that we're not going to know lots of details about people's burials and where they are. And we have to accept that and say it's a mystery and say, you know, I, I, I accept 
Damascus, I accept Cairo, and, I, and I'm just going to stick with that. But in my book, I didn't make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. thought I'm not going to uh, do this. I'm just going to say there are these options and Medina is the least likely. The least likely, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, my first visit to Lady Zainab's uh, shrine in Damascus was back in 2010. Mm. Uh, I had the the honor of visiting the shrine back yeah 2010 before there was any uh, any crisis in Syria. Um, that was actually with Sayyid Ammar Nakhshawani, so I managed to visit visit visit, visit yeah. that shrine. And I, I remember we had we had this conversation, and he said, you know, again the, both opinions are, are are there. He said that the feeling you get sometimes at a shrine. Helps you with 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 making a decision mm. for yourself. But as 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 you mentioned, both sites are holy. I haven't been to Cairo yet, mm. so you've been to Cairo. Been to Cairo, yeah, I haven't mm. been to the Cairo shrine, so maybe once I, uh, I I don't know if I was spiritually aware enough at that stage because this was a good number of years ago. Mm-hmm. To to I mean, in fact, I didn't even know who Zainab was at that stage. So okay. you know, I just thought, oh, here's another another tomb, tomb. of a saint or a holy yeah. person. Or I knew she was the daughter of of Ali and Fatima, but I didn't have any knowledge of her importance. I've had this conversation with, say, Nakshawani myself, so, so, and we've battled it out a little bit, but I think we agree that, that in the end, you're not going to solve this mystery. It's just... Yeah, it's not, it's not one to be solved anyway. It's not I to think, be solved. And like I think said, that, that as with other religious places, people get a sense of place. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go into a, this masjid and just feel that there's something here and another masjid and just feel nothing. I think that that's true of churches and all all places of worship and of tombs as well. You just get a sense that uh, this is a place that I just, I feel like I need to be here. Talking of Zainab, and again, I, I ask you this because of, of your extent of research on her, the fact that you've written this book, which again, I'm guessing is also available on Amazon. It is. Uh, a bit more expensive, unfortunately, but that's because it's hardcover. So hopefully people can look out for it. <laughs> yeah. But um, how important do you think the role of Zainab is in the story of Karbala? Ah, it's a very interesting question. She, she is crucial in terms of being present to her brother. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just because he needed to have people around him who he knew were with him and supported him. And she was a familiar face, his own sister. So she's important in that role, that she gave unwavering support from the beginning. I mean, there's some dispute over, you know, why did her husband not come to Karbala? But, but the fact is that she was unwavering, that she was going to support her brother. And, and that psychologically is of great importance to him. One can say that. She, she intervenes a number of times, I think three on the battlefield. Um, uh, and she's described, so, so I mean, I, I, I go into quite a lot of detail because I, I'm very moved by this. She's described in the days leading up to Karbala as quite distressed. She hears the enemy army coming and it, she breaks down. She hears Al-Hussein making this lament about tomorrow so many will be dead and she breaks down, saying that he's had a, a vision of his own grandfather saying, you are coming to us, and she breaks down. So she's quite frail and fragile on the eve of the battle. But on the day of the battle, there's a remarkable change. And even the Sunni authors record that she looked like the sun rising as she came out onto the battlefield. And three times she walks out of the woman's tents right into the middle of the fighting, uh, one to intervene when her nephew is killed. So, so um, Ali, uh, the, the, the oldest of, of Hussein's sons, he's killed. A second time she comes out to chase after this little boy 
at Hussein's command and she can't catch him. <laughs> He's too fast for her because he wants to fight with his uncle. And a third time she comes out to challenge the men killing Al-Hussein. And it's this famous challenge where, where somebody as, as terrible as, um, as Umar bin Sa'id turns away and weeps because he's challenged by her and he knows that he's... Yeah. So, so, so in that sense, she is of great importance, but even more important after the battle because... Yeah. And this is where I get into trouble because, because she was, for a short time, the leader of the Ahl Bayt. There's no doubt about that. Uh, young um, Ali bin al-Hussein was much too sick to, 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 to function mm -hmm. immediately after the battle. And his life, in fact, is saved twice... Why is Daddy Zainab? Well, no, not really. By other people, enemies, okay. enemies, even soldiers in the enemy army, okay. who, who intervene against people like like, like Umar and say you, you're not going to kill a child, or against Shimmer, not Umar, so Shimmer and say you're not going to kill a child. Don't be ridiculous. At least twice, his life is saved. She saves his life later on okay. in the court of uh, when she's where they before Ziyad, but later that's later on. It's that, it's that period of days after Karbala, from the journey between Karbala to Kufa, Kufa uh, to, to the court of Yazid, to Damascus. That period, however long it was, and it's difficult to know how long it was, when they were being interrogated and ill-treated, she was the pole around which everything revolved. Absolutely. And there's a particular moment where her, her nephew, Ali bin al-Hussein, says to her, be quiet now, let me speak. And that for me is the moment when he takes his place as imam. He's imam, but when he actually takes his place and takes over leadership of this group. But until then, it is Lady Zainab. And I always defend this by saying, she's not a woman with masculine virtues. Bravery is not a masculine virtue, it's a human virtue. So we, we don't want to say she was as good as a man. That's a terrible thing for me. She was an extraordinarily powerful woman who betrayed all the great virtues, by betrayed I mean showed forth all the great virtues that are equally right in women as in men. Bravery, courage, the ability to speak with great uh, articulation against injustice. And, and in a sense, she, she functioned as the leader of the House of Islam. Now, I mean, of, of the Ahl Bayt. So, so I then said to some scholars, could she, could she be said in a sense to have shared in the imama. Mm. So I got into a bit of trouble there. Yeah. And, and I understand. Yeah, because that, that, that's but not... Because the imama is something more than that. But she certainly possessed some of the qualities that are crucial to imama. She did. Without being legally, without being imama, without having the legal power and the legal, the jurisprudential power of the imam. She had some of the qualities that are necessary for the imam to function. Of that I'm sure. It's, it's, it's a different, obviously, perspective. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely, from, I, and from, I understand from, from, from the from the main Shia yeah, yeah. Uh, theological uh, way. But it's interesting because you mentioned something quite important, which I think, again, no one doubts this: that the fact that the the time when Imam Hussein was killed, mm. um, Sayyid Zainab played an important role. Uh, of course, we have. Uh, a narration to, to sort of keynote that she still took guidance from him, uh, Ali ibn Hussein al-Sajjad, uh, even though he might have been sick, that being the fact that when she, when they were burning the tents, 
and she said to her nephew they are they have the enemies have come to burn the tents do we stay in the tents or do we go out yeah. go out and that sort of uh, is used as he was the, the with regards to jurisprudence which you mentioned now very very clearly that he was but it's, it's beautiful that she imam uh, al hussein gives her a will as well just like he gives a sajjad his son Absolutely. which is look look after my daughters don't don't hit yourself don't don't slap your face don't cry over me don't let the enemy see you you know whatever the text is but he gives her an important role yeah. so so it's key and and she plays this important role and that's why i asked is yeah. because the she famously says that whatever you do yazid you will not member. So, oh. so in fact, that's the crucial role that before Ziyad and then before Yazid, it is Zainab who justifies everything that her brother has done and perpetuates his memory. And so some people kind of say, well, if it hadn't been for her, Kabbalah wouldn't have continued. I'm not sure about that myself. Mm. But she certainly is the one who defends his actions before these two and, and justifies all that he has done. Absolutely. Zain al-Abidin is the imam, absolutely. And, and of course, there are, there are different stories about yeah. you know, how old he was at the time, how sick he was at the time. We understand all of this. But, but she bursts through the texts as this yeah. extraordinary figure who just takes control. She's the matriarch, if you like, mm. of the Ahl Bayt at that moment. Um, I'd like to thank you for making time today. I'd just like to ask you, my a final question is that with the um, with with some oppression taking place against some shias the fact just because they're shias and with that with some um, injustices against uh, shias for example mourning imam hussein you know then certain places in the world where they may be not allowed or oppressed because of this yes. um and in certain groups you know we don't want to generalize you know like and this is also in some texts that they consider Shias to be disbelievers or out of the fold of of Islam. Now, that leads to my question, which is, um, have you been contacted by, you know, any group or, or anyone to say, you know, don't study about Shia Islam, you know, they try to push you away from, 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 teaching and researching it to Shia Islam and saying, you know, I don't know. Has there been any, 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 any of that kind of... Uh... It's, it's very interesting because when I, when I started my doctorate, there were some professors of mine, um, all of whom are dead now, but I, there were men I greatly respect. These are Catholic priests. Mm -hmm. They were all experts in Sunni Islam. And I could remember one of them saying to me, why do you waste your time with the Shia? The Shia are nothing. You do Islamic law. That's much more important. Write a doctorate in Islamic law. He said, why do you waste your time? Then the year before he died, he came to me and said, I'm so glad you studied Shia Islam because, because of course, there's been this. So, so, but in terms, of, in terms of the Islamic family, let's say, mm. I've occasionally had encounters with non-Shia Muslims who kind of um, disdain what I've done. They, they can't understand why. They just say, you know, they haven't said. I've never, I've never heard... I've never in conversation heard one Muslim accuse another of being rafidi yeah. or any of this. I've never actually heard this. I've seen it on social media. I've never heard it. But, but I'm, and, and I've never, curiously enough, occasionally I meet Christians who get really cross with me. I say, why, why don't you, you should be converting them. Preach, 
preach the Christian life to them. Um, and because they failed to understand that that's not the issue. You know, there are other issues that in terms of human life together that are absolutely crucial. And one is that that ignorance is what brings about intolerance and persecution. So I've never really I've never really had a real problem. Um, I can remember a man who was a Shia, although I didn't know it at the time. When I left South Africa to study Islam, he came to the airport because he said, I want to tell you that you will never learn the true Islam. And I didn't know who he was and what he meant. I only found out years later that he was a, a Shia who thought that I would never do Shia Islam. Well, as it turns out, it went the other way. So now if I could find him, I would tell him, you were wrong, you made a terrible mistake. But I understand that there are, as in Christianity, there are tensions and accusations and, um, and, and it's part of the reality of living in a world where people more and more learn everything they know of social media. People don't read books, they don't study, they just get bite-sized bits of information from whoever's talking the loudest. And as you know, everybody on social media is a professor of something. Mm. <laughs> this is Professor Google. Professor Google. And so people learn all that they know about politics, about religion, about faith. They learn it on, 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 on social media, and they think that they are then qualified to speak. I, you know, I, I would, I'm still nervous about talking of, about Islam. When I'm 90 then maybe I would like to talk about Islam. But it's the same about Christianity. I'm very nervous about talking of faith. You know, I've been a Christian for 55 years. It's not long enough for me to talk authoritatively. You know, I, I, like, I like these great scholars who just keep silent and read and study, and eventually they write something profound. That for me is great greatness, real greatness. Father, uh, Christopher, it's been an honor having you. We've, um, I myself have learned, and hopefully our listeners would have learned something new and um, our understanding of Karbala, I, I, I always say this, I say it's, it's amazing that we uh, as Shias or Muslims or anyone who, who studies uh, the story of Karbala and we are in the month of Muharram, mm. we study uh, or we listen to the story of Imam Hussein every year, yet it still hurts when we listen to it. It still moves our emotions uh, and, uh, and and that's the unique part, one of the unique parts of the story of Hussein that even though you'll listen to it maybe every year or every day, it never, it never gets old. It's, it's an eternal message. And it's amazing that we have heard the, or heard from you the, the, the story or from your perspective. And I think we can learn a lot uh, from your research i thank you for making time uh, on this on this podcast and hopefully we'll wish you the best and hopefully you can um, you can visit karbala one day the fact that it still hurts means that you are human and have not become hardened as so many people have to to the the great examples that we have before us in life so it's been a great pleasure thank you thank you father christopher <laughs>